Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke uh, chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles provided for you, it's page 726. Page 726. I did want to just let you guys know a couple things to make sure that you are in prayer for. Uh, be praying for Miss uh, Teresa DeBose. Uh, she's going in for a back surgery uh, tomorrow morning. Um, so just be praying for her that God would uh, give the doctor steady hands. Um, and many of, you, many of you may have heard uh, that Miss uh, Genevieve uh, Morton, a longtime member and uh, faithfully sung in our choir for, for, for decades, uh, went to be with the Lord this week. Uh, her funeral services will be tomorrow uh, here at the church at 3 o'clock. Uh, with a visitation at, uh, at 2 o'clock uh, before the service. So be praying for her family. Uh, we'd love to, if you were able to make it, to come and support uh, them here tomorrow. We'll turn to Luke chapter 3, uh, verse 21. We're going to read verses 21 through 23. When all the people were being baptized... Jesus was baptized too, and as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we love you so much. We um, ask now, Father, um, for your peace, for your blessing, Father. For we know you are God. You made us, and we are the people of your pasture. We shout for joy and worship you with gladness. Father, we desire to enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. We give thanks to you and we praise your name for your love endures forever. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Oh, Holy Father, you tell us to pray for our leaders, so we do so now. God, we pray specifically for our deacons this morning. God, we pray that you give them wisdom as they serve our church. Help them care for our church well. We pray that you grow them in humility and grace as they labor together for your glory. Father, we ask that you keep the deacon body united. Help them strive for unity in the bond of peace. Father, we pray for other churches. We pray this morning for Andrew Taylor at Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that you fill him with your spirit. Give him courage and wisdom to, as he leads that church as your under-shepherd. We pray that you protect his marriage and family. God, we also pray that you bring people into the fold, Lord God, that they may be strengthened by your word and build that body up for the common good. God, we also pray for other lands. We pray for the gospel to bear fruit in Turkey. We pray that you bless the believers there. Help the gospel grow. Strengthen pastors in the knowledge of your word. that They may better serve your people with your word, God. And God, we ask for a, a special blessing on the family of Miss Genevieve, God. What a dear woman of faith, sweet and gracious. God, we pray that you surround her family uh, with comfort, uh, with the, the, the hope and the promise of the gospel, that as a believer in Christ, she is in glory. Father, we ask for a specific prayer for Miss Teresa DeBose as she goes in for surgery tomorrow. God, we pray that you will be kind to her and merciful, that you give the doctor steady hands, that the surgery will go well, and the recovery will be quickly. Father, we ask now for our own hearts. 
Prepare us. Prepare us, Lord, to have eyes to see and ears to hear. But God, let us not hear only with words. Let us hear with understanding that we can apply what we hear in our lives. Help your people, God. Love your word. God, we pray that you free us from the the slavery to fear. That you help us to realize that we are adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. And Father, I do pray for the blessing of my words. God, I pray that you will use me to build up your people. Father, I, I just desperately plead with you today that you use whatever offering I have for you to encourage your people and to draw those who do not know you to your presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, beloved, there are some things that are just hard to explain. Um, I have learned uh, from my father uh, that if you don't really understand something, you just say it like you really believe it (laughs) with force, and people generally will think that you know what you're talking about. Um, I remember uh, my wife and I took a group of students uh, when I was a teacher in Washington, D.C. to the University of Pennsylvania to hear a group, uh, to hear me speak at um, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And on the way home, I mean, it was a great trip. We had a great time. And on the way back, you know, one of the, one of the kids asked from the back seat, Rashad Smith, and says, Mr. Keene, how, how does water get from our sink to the sewers? I said, well, Rashad, let me, this is how it works. It's a complicated system. <laughs> and my wife graciously interjected and said, um, he has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> Because some things are just hard to explain. I didn't know it then. I still don't know it now. Um, But my wife was gracious. He has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, I pray that my wife will not say the same thing this morning as we talk about one of the difficult concepts uh, as Christians, as we look at the Trinity. Uh, As Christians, we believe in one God with three persons. As some have said, it kind of seems like a difficult math problem. Uh, one God and three persons, how does that work uh, together? Uh, The catechism questions uh, that I've asked you to memorize. Number three says this, how many persons are there in the one God? There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance and equal in power and glory. That idea is essential for the Christian faith, but it's also a concept that is very difficult to understand. Today, I hope that that, con- that difficult concept will be displayed more clearly in the baptism of the Lord Jesus. This is one of the places that you see all three persons of the Trinity interacting at one time. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father. So let's look at the Son first. If you want to follow along in the bulletin provided for you, uh, there will be notes on the back. Uh, that first point is the distinguished Son the first person of the Trinity, the distinguished Son. What's first? Let's set the scene. We remember from last week that John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People began to wonder if he was the Christ. So John answered him in verse 16. He says, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the throngs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John made it clear that he was not the Messiah. He was just the one preparing the way for the one to come, the one who was more powerful than him. It's interesting that the section ends with John being arrested and locked in prison by Herod. 
Look at verse 29 in in Luke chapter 3. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now, it's interesting that why Luke does that. Because we find out from the Gospel of John that John's ministry of, of baptism and Jesus' ministry was overlapped. So Jesus uh, overlapped with John. John 3.16, John's disciples came to, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, this Jesus, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So we see there's, there's an overlap there. So because there's an overlap, we have to ask ourselves, why did Luke cut it off? Why did Luke cut off John's ministry? The NIV, which you just read in verse 21, says, when all the people were being baptized. The King James says it this way, when all the people were baptized. The reading in the original Greek is probably closer to the King James, when all the people were baptized. It was more of a finality. Not meaning that John baptized everybody, but really the the ministry of John was coming to a close. John had fulfilled his purpose. It was culminated in the ministry, the baptism of the Lord Jesus. The Messiah is here. The one more powerful than John has come. He fulfilled his purpose. So Jesus' baptism is the crescendo of John's labor and his ministry. We have got to ask ourselves, well, why did Luke cut it off? Well, later on in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 16, verse 6, it says, 16 rather, it says this, The law and the prophets were until John. Remember last week I said, you know, John's uh, message of the baptism of repentance was connected to the Old Testament prophecy, that there was going to be one that was to come, that people were going to be baptized because of the proximity, the closeness of time of when the Messiah was actually going to be there. So the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. See, Jesus' baptism is a shift in salvation history. This is one of the the stories that appears in all of the four Gospels. The supporting actors are are fading away and the main character steps on the scene. The days of the law and the prophets have come and gone. Now is the time of the Messiah. The Lord Jesus has come. And the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. I think Luke makes the point explicit in verse 23. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when... He began his ministry. It's exciting, isn't it? Can you imagine for, for all of eternity was, was culminating in this moment when the Son of God was going to come and rescue his people. He began his ministry. This is the turning point. But we have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus need to get baptized? This was a baptism of, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, Matthew 3.15 says this, kind of helps us, gives the reasoning of why Jesus came to be baptized. He says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. Listen to how one pastor explains why Jesus came to be baptized. He said there was enough in John's baptism for Jesus to affirm that the event was not meaningless. Negatively, it meant turning from sin. Positively, it meant trusting God. 
Jesus could affirm both. He resolved not to sin, but always to turn from it, and he committed himself to trust God. Jesus, in essence, was affirming John's message that everyone, everywhere, needed to repent. They needed the forgiveness of sins. See, but Jesus was the distinguished son. He was not like John. He was not of the law and the prophets. He came in grace. So his baptism is to usher in the gospel of the kingdom of God. His humility in being baptized and identifying himself with us, with sinners. His humility is our hope. See, God distinguished Jesus in grace that we might find our freedom from the law. When I've been studying this passage this week, the Lord has really just been speaking that God wants us to be free from the law. He wants us to be free from the the temptation for us to feel that we can accomplish things on our own. We need Jesus. Our lives should be beacons for others to find grace. But sadly, how often do we preach the law without grace? We look down on others when they sin against us, forgetting that we are sinners in need of grace ourselves. We're quick to pass judgment and to shame others. But we've all fallen short of the glory of God. When someone does something that you dislike just bothers you. Do you complain about them or pray for them? Do you, do you, when you think of that person who offends you, do you think about all the good things in that person? How God has shown his evidences of grace in that person's life? Or do you only focus on their weaknesses until all you see is their weaknesses? We are far, beloved, from an emotionally healthy church. Our church has to grow a lot emotionally in how we love and care for one another. We have to learn to overlook offenses by focusing how God is moving in someone's life, not only on their weaknesses. Regardless, this is a major event in the life of Jesus He's stepping on to center stage. His public ministry is now beginning. Luke does something, though the other gospel events um, in in Matthew, Mark, and and, and John don't mention this. But Luke consistently does this. In every major event in Jesus' life, you always find that Jesus is praying. So Jesus is praying here, and the way that the verse actually reads, so it says, go back with me in verse 21 in Luke 3, it says, when the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and he was praying. That's the main verse of of the sentence, and he was praying. And then all the other uh, verbs go back in, in subjection to that one. So he came, he was praying, heaven was opened, Holy Spirit descended, and the voice came, all... Uh, serving that main verb clause. So when you read it, it almost is like everything that happened after was because Jesus was praying. Luke almost says that he was baptized as kind of like a preliminary. But the main thing was his praying. We don't know exactly what he was praying, but we can, we can learn from later on in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 11, he says this. He says, Which of you fathers, if a son asks for a fish, 
will you give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, though are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, now here's the point, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus asked for the Holy Spirit, and the Father graciously gave the Spirit to the Son. I think we should just follow Jesus' example before we move on. That before any major event in your life, are you seeking the face of God? Are you praying for wisdom? Uh, I met Dale DeBose uh, as a sophomore in high school. Uh, He was young uh, in his faith, didn't know much, but he was eager uh, for the things of God. Uh, I had the privilege of discipling him and walking with him for two years. Uh, He's now studying at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, He called me on Monday night and said, "Um, Pastor Dave, I I just want to let you know that I'd ask you to pray for me. Um, I'm going to propose to my girlfriend uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, and, and what he wanted, he wanted to seek out friends and mentors to pray with him. That's probably the biggest decision of your life, right? The person you're going to marry and spend the rest of your life with. Well, Dale, my good friend, was following uh, the voice of Jesus. He was following his example to seek, uh, him, seek God in prayer before those major life events. I pray that we should do the same. Well, at the end of verse 21, you see heaven was open. This is a sign to the reader that God is going to intervene. God himself is going to inject himself into this story. It's kind of like something big is about to go down. You know, I'm not sure what happens when you become a parent, but you know that if you want your child's attention, you use their full government name. So when my parents wanted my attention, they said, David Benson King. I knew something big was about to go down. That's the sign of heaven's opening. I'm always curious, though. You know, that's something that we often do. I wonder in the, in the, in the Bible, because most, most biblical characters don't have a last name. I can only imagine a mother calling out their father's name. You know, um, Isaac, son of Abraham, rather than his full name. That was a point of levity. Did not work well. All right, second point. The descended spirit. The descended Spirit. So as I mentioned above, Jesus possibly could have asked for the Holy Spirit to come there. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now I believe at this time Jesus Christ is being led by the Spirit and already has the Holy Spirit. Because when when the Bible talks about being in the Spirit, it's often about talking about obedience. If you're in the Spirit, you are obeying God. And we know that Jesus never sinned. Jesus always walked perfectly in obedience. He always walked in the Spirit. But the Spirit descended on Jesus in a bodily form, like a dove. It was not a dove, but appeared like a dove. The Spirit descended upon Jesus as a confirmation from God of his messianic role. Jesus was now beginning his ministry in God's way of saying, You are my Son. The Spirit is upon you. It's a quote from uh, Isaiah 42, the section of the God's servant coming to, to liberate his people. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Here is my servant whom I behold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout out or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A breeze rude he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. 
In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. It's to remind us the Spirit comes on Jesus. Jesus is going to come to bring justice, true justice into the world as the Messiah. And the Spirit coming in bodily form was confirmation of that. I will put my Spirit on Him, and He will bring justice to the nations. Now, when you think about the Holy Spirit, us Baptists don't always talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, People get kind of nervous when you start talking about the Holy Spirit, but it's a beautiful doctrine. What you see here of the Spirit's role in the baptism of Jesus is pretty much the Spirit's role all the time. The Holy Spirit has been aptly referred to as the humble member of the Trinity because His role is to make much of Jesus. His job is to convict people that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. The Spirit appears in bodily form as a visual confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. His ministry has now officially begun in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul says in, in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. And we always want to talk, how do, we be, how do we be filled with the Spirit? Well, I don't think typically being filled with the Spirit is speaking in tongues. I think being filled with the Spirit means that your life makes much of Jesus Christ. Because the Spirit points that to us, that we want to make much of Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I tell you, no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be accursed. And no one could say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. We are born again of the Spirit of God. So how do you walk in the Spirit? Do you want to make much of Jesus? Do you want to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? If you do, if you want to praise Him and serve Him above anything, you are being filled with the Spirit of God. So as the Holy Spirit was confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah, it's our confirmation that we are saved. It's our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in the age to come. Now Luke does say that it appeared in a bodily form like a dove. Now what's the significance of the dove? Matthew 10, 16 says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And the Holy Spirit is just that. Holy, pure, guiltless, innocent as a dove. Because we, right when we move from here, the very next scene that we see Jesus is he's being tempted by the devil. And I think it's God's way of saying you are called to be pure. You are called to be holy. You're going to be tempted, but you need to walk in the Spirit. So this dove is a reminder that Jesus, that not only that, that he is the Messiah, but he has the power to overcome any temptation that comes his way. And is that a reminder that we all need? That we have the power in the Holy Spirit to overcome any temptation that comes our way. We all struggle with sin. Sin takes many forms. Lust, pride, jealousy, anger, bitterness, discontent. Our sin may be expressed outwardly against others, but we must know, where does it start? It starts in our heart. It starts in our our minds. We have to learn that one of the best ways to fight your sin 
is to make much of Jesus Christ, to value Jesus more than anything. Jesus is more valuable than the fleeting pleasures of sin. He's the Savior. He's given you the power to overcome. Let's trust Him. And as, as I was preparing this sermon, the Lord, I believe, laid on my heart and just one of the sins that our congregation needs to trust God in by the power of the Spirit is bitterness. One of the besetting sins of this congregation is just bitterness. I see too many of you holding on to the hurts of the past. The hurt we experience is very real, but every time we hurt, we have the opportunity to overcome bitterness by trusting God in the power of the Spirit. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now we could talk about our insensitivity, but I think we've probably struggled more with bitterness. People have hurt you in the past, and you have not let it go. You have not forgiven them. It may be in this church, it may be in another church, but that bitterness doesn't just harm the person that you're bitter against. It affects the whole body. Can I tell you how many people have walked away from this church because they got hurt and they were bitter about it? But when they walk away, they don't just hurt the person that offended them, they hurt me. They hurt you because they're no longer here to serve. They're no longer here to to build one another up. I know that there's some of you here who are holding on to bitterness of years of past hurt. By the power of the Holy Spirit, do not let that root of bitterness take hold. I work with a lot of people who are struggling in their marriages. And I tell you, this is something that's very strong. It's that bitterness. It's that root of bitterness that was allowed to be developed. And it was never severed at the root. So marriages struggle and possibly end up breaking apart because of that bitterness. Beloved, if we want to have a healthy, emotional church, we must overcome bitterness by the power of the Spirit of God. Beloved, be innocent of evil. Third point, we must be delighted. Sorry, the delighted father. The delighted father. Well, the second half of verse 22, it says, And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is a quote from Psalm 2-7, which Robert read earlier, and Isaiah 42-1, which I just read. We've gotten the, the physical confirmation, and now we get the verbal confirmation from the Father. So we see the Son and the Spirit and the Father all working together. The voice of heaven booms out of the ripped open heavens to declare to the world, you are my son. See, the Father has always existed as the Father. There was never a day that God the Father did not exist as God the Father ever loving the Son. Look at those verbs. They're all present tense. You are, I love, I am. Every moment in history, every moment, is the Father loving the Son with delight. He he loves the Son and is pleased. Now, there are many of us who have not experienced that delighting love from our earthly fathers. 
I've seen many young men and women struggle with who they are in their identity, whether it be sin or whatever, because they've never experienced the delight and pleasure from a father. Delight from our parents is crucial for our development because it provides us anchors for our souls. Children do not grow up to earn and win acceptance by their parents, but they grow up knowing that they are already accepted. So many of the things that we do is is trying to prove to others to accept us. I think back in my own life and see how many times my actions are driven to try to win the approval of others rather than to rest in the approval of God. And I'll be honest, I've learned a lot as a pastor. But one of the things I didn't even realize was there is how difficult it can be, uh, the, the weight of people's expectations uh, on a pastor. You know, I often struggle um, with that thought of trying to win your approval. Uh, am I visiting enough? Am I spending enough time in prayer? Um, did, I, did I do this right or did I do that right? Are they going to be upset with me? Did I return the phone call fast enough? Have I responded to the email fast enough? Because I want to love you. I want to shepherd you well. But at the end of the day, I, don't, I can't live. Like you can't live for the approval of others. This is why this passage is so beautiful. This is why it is freeing. Look, I have to daily remind myself that if you reject me and think I'm an awful pastor, an awful man, you know what? I'm still accepted by God. I am forgiven by God. God looks at me and he says, you are my son. You are my daughter, beloved. He has adopted us as his sons and daughters through his son, Jesus Christ. Now this is mind-boggling because I know my sin. I know how, how could God be pleased with me for all that I've done wrong. See, but the Father does not delight just in you. The Father delights in you because you're in the Son. That's the way the Bible speaks of salvation. We are united in Christ. We are connected to him. And because we're connected to him, God looks at us through the lens of Jesus and he says, my son, my daughter, whom I love, I am well pleased because Christ has died for your behalf. I love that picture. That Jesus is pleased, God is pleased with me because of Jesus. Because I'm connected to Jesus. So if you're here and you're a non-Christian, have you ever felt that rejection? The fear of rejection? Have you ever asked, why, are we, why do we fear the opinions of others? Well, I think that at the core, we know this because deep down we know that something's not right. Something's wrong with us. We know that we deserve to be judged for our sin. So what's wrong with us is our sin. Our sin is disconnected and separated us from God the Father. So we always live this fear that we're going to be rejected, that people are not going to accept us. But when we step into Jesus, we're already accepted. God has accepted Jesus by his death and his resurrection. So when God looks at us, we are forgiven. We are accepted. I pray if you've never been accepted by the Lord Jesus Christ by turning to him in faith, I pray you do so today. So Christians, our our baptism shows our connection to this triune God. Matthew 28, verses 18 says this, Then Jesus came to them and said, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, not in the names. Right? We serve one God, three persons, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded to you. See, our baptism connects us to the Trinity. We no longer have to be slaves to fear. Listen to Romans 8, 13 through 17. If you live according to sinful nature, you will die. But if the spirit you, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, that you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies within our spirit that we are God's children. Beloved, look at the glory of the gospel. You are God's children. You don't have to live for anyone's approval because God already says you are approved in him. That does not mean, beloved, that you're never going to be rejected. You will be. Jesus was rejected. Listen to what Zach Eswine in his book, Sensing Jesus, writes. He says, people criticized, resisted, and overlooked and left Jesus. Remember that Jesus had a death threat on his life because he had helped heal someone. Jesus' family thought he was insane, and they criticized him. Crowds of thousands were reduced to 12 because Jesus exposed them for following him for what they could get rather than out of true faith and love. Doing what will mend others in the gospel will rile and outrage some. So, beloved, if you follow Jesus, people are going to reject you. That is going to happen. It happened to our Lord. But we must know this. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus will never be rejected by the one that truly matters. Because Jesus Christ has overcome the grave on our behalf. I'm not sure if you love that, that our new song of the month, but that, that verse when it says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. I pray that be your heartbeat. Uh, today and for all time. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we pray that we will be free uh, from fear of acceptance of, of others, God, knowing that we have been accepted by you. Father, help us uh, live for the distinguished Son and the power of the descending Spirit to the delight of God the Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.